You're listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the president of Wiley Education Services, Todd Zipper. Hello, I'm Todd Zipper, the host of An Educated Guest. On today's show, I speak with Kathleen Delasky, founder and CEO of Education Design Lab. Additionally, Kathleen served as the president of the Delasky Family Foundation, a leading grant maker in education focused on equity in education, environmental stewardship, and the arts. Kathleen has an impressive background launching or co-launching four nonprofits over the past two decades, all centered on improving the quality of education. In addition, she previously served as chief spokesman for the Pentagon, overseeing the military's worldwide public information team. The key takeaways from our discussion today. First, 60 to 70% of the student population represent the new majority learner, where college was not originally designed for them, and that number is quickly becoming closer to 80%. Second, one of the biggest challenges of a skills-based economy is how to create competency maps that roll into new kinds of credentials representing the 21st century skills framework. Third, only 17% of learners who start out in community college in hopes of attaining a four-year college degree do so, which represents 12 million people. Fourth, the micropathway approach is a newer model to help track learners to a specific role in the short term, but also to longer term livable wage job goals. And lastly, pre-pandemic consumer demand was already changing for in-demand education. The pandemic has helped providers understand the importance of meeting the changing needs of learners and doing so quickly. Hello, Kathleen, and thank you for being here today on An Educated Guest. Thanks for having me on the show, Todd. All right. So you're someone who has a true passion for higher ed and one who continues to advocate for advancement and innovation. You have launched or co-launched four nonprofits in the past two decades, and all are related to improving the quality of education. So set the table here for our listeners. Tell us about your journey and your latest venture, Education Design Lab, and about its mission. Well, thanks. It's kind of hard to sum up. I'm, you know, I'm getting up there in years. And so the, uh, the short answer to my journey is that I spent a number of years in different aspects of, of the economy, you know, ranging from a journalist, a journalist for a number of years, which I think really helps you, you know, ask the questions and, and challenge reality or, or try to understand reality, right? I spent a couple of years in government, which was very eye-opening, I spent a uh, number of years working for a Fortune 500. It was actually Sally Mae, where I learned a lot about education finance, and I was also at AOL in the early days, so I learned a lot about what consumers want in the digital world, and that was in the 90s, so back when people were just figuring that out. And so then when I went into the nonprofit world, which was around 2000, I knew that I saw education as the lever for social mobility from all the different vantage points I'd already, I'd already touched. And I really saw nonprofit as the way that new nonprofits needed to be created to move among and be the boundary spanners, as Michael Crow has called them, to bring change about or at least get different types of stakeholders who are sort of in their silos to work together. And I've done this from a couple different vantage points now, first in K-12 in the education reform movement in the 2000s and early 2010s, and then really moved to the the higher ed sector, really because of my experience with Sally May and seeing 
who gets left behind from the education finance model. You know, we've been trying so hard to bring new groups into even seeing what their federal financial aid rights were. And just the people who were taking advantage of those programs were not necessarily the people who needed them most. And so between education finance and I was on the board at, at George Mason University for about eight years, which was you know, really trying hard to become at that time an, a really innovative model for you know, non-traditional students, what we now call new majority learners. And just sitting from that seat, I saw how hard it was for colleges and universities to actually do the kind of innovation that they wanted to do. And so that's when we started the lab. This was 2013, just as MOOCs were coming on the scene. And we decided to try to be that boundary-spanning organization you know, that looked, that started with the learner and tried to figure out well, what does college need to be for people that it's not being today. Putting the learner at the center of the higher ed equation is, is somewhat novel, right? You, you would think. So I know you put design in the title of your company name, and design thinking is a lot of what you do for your customers, if you will. Can you just kind of define what design thinking is and maybe talk a little bit more about the types of institutions that you all work with? Sure. Yeah, so design thinking is gained uh, popularity, actually dating back to like the 1950s, as a way to do user research for products, right? Whether it was cars in the early days or buildings or desks or whatever the product that people might be needing to have it meet the needs of users. But in you know about 20 years ago, people really started thinking about, wow, this process could be really useful in social design and systems design to solve problems, you know, whether it's around, you know, how users in the medical system could, you know, more easily utilize or better utilize the medical system, hunger, poverty, you know, these the sort of the big issues, the the you know, the audacious problems that that were becoming more important for us to try to solve. And we were sort of the first group to take this on in the in the higher education space. And so what it looks like for us is to create a process, really a disciplined process that pushes people to first understand the needs of users, not what the institutions are offering, but what the users actually need. So to understand them and their motivations, their behaviors, and then to mine those insights that you gather from that through a process that has you looking at what are the barriers that are stopping them from meeting their needs. And then you begin really an ideation and prototyping process that takes you to, you know, hopefully elegant solutions that are higher order solutions than you could have come up with if you just said, okay, we're doing this, it's not working, let's try this. You know, so it's a more disciplined creative process that also is quite democratic. That's what was so interesting in employing this in higher ed for the first time as we started, you know, in around 2013, is that everyone had the same goal, which is you know, they're all there for students. And yet the silos and the regulations and the tenure system, right, didn't allow designers of programs and designers of, of, of education at the higher ed level to actually design for students or with students. And so, you know, by by kind of forcing themselves into this process particularly around the big questions, which we can get to in a minute, it really created for them a, a new mindset that could lead to not only change management, but also actual designs to prototype and begin to test in the world. Hmm. We are going to definitely get into some of those solutions you're working on, but you mentioned a term that I, I need to highlight, which is the new majority learner. 
So you've described a large portion of the student population as this. And I've seen that you've broken it down into five different categories. Can you really talk through with the definition of what does the new majority learner look like in each of these categories? Sure. So the new majority learner for us, the, the definition is really all learners for whom college was not originally designed. And by that, uh, originally, in our case, in the U.S. instance, would be, you know, 500 years ago, you think of the, the universities that were created for the landed gentry, the, the sons of landowners, right? And they would go off to the ivory tower and the professors would teach them the great works and um, give them a liberal education, right? That's, that's the model we know. And interestingly, that model has not changed very much in those 500 years. And it even goes back further in Europe, in the Middle Ages, et cetera. And so what's changed over time, particularly in the, in the 20th century, is that more groups have been allowed in, but it hasn't been changed very much to meet the needs of the new users. And we would say at this point, we call them the new majority because it's really, you know, depending on how you break it down, it's between 60 and 70 and heading towards 80% of all students and learners. And so the types of people that we, you know, that you, the categories of learners that we're talking about really range from learners of color of all types, right? Learners of low socioeconomic status, ESL learners, undocumented learners, single moms, veterans who are, you know, trying to return back into 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 a you know education uh, situation, but also people of other statuses like single parents. Ten percent of all learners. Are single moms, you know, which is kind of a surprising number. Also, part-time or working students, you know, which is actually the census says that there's 10 million part-time and working students, right? And college was not designed for them, for sure. So that gives you a, a sense. It also includes categories like neurodivergent and even, you know, learners who might be genderqueer, transgender, gender non-binary, you know, college wasn't really designed for them either. And so those are the categories of people that we're talking about. And you you know, when you add them up, I mean, there's a lot of overlap in some of these groups, so it's hard to get to an exact number, but it is a majority of students, particularly when you look at the cliff of the 18 to 24 year old that's coming, you know, like 2025 of the traditional student, that student will be in the, not just the minority, but kind of the extreme minority, if you include lifelong learning learners, which is why we use the word learner instead of students, because students you kind of associate with young people. But the five, you mentioned five categories, Todd, the five categories for us are the the categories of needs that we have identified across all of these types of learners I just described. And we, you know, we've probably interviewed and designed with, at this point, several thousand of these different categories of learners. And obviously there are specific needs for specific groups, but we've highlighted five categories of needs that, you know, that we ask colleges, universities, job centers, employers, whoever's doing learning providing to think about. And and I could just list those quickly. And if you want, we could go into them later. But the first one has been on the college access agenda for years, which is affordability. And that's obviously an obvious one. The second one really hit home during COVID, which is flexibility, right, in terms of mode of delivery. The third one, portability, is has been interesting as we look more and more at the proliferation of credentials and micro-credentials. How do you know that the credential you're you know, attaining can follow you to another learning provider so that it has meaning beyond you know, the place you are? That's a key one. 
relevance is one that has come up a lot, particularly if people are, you know, that we're looking at the future of work and you look at the curricula and the majors that are in colleges and there's a lot of back and forth about are we actually preparing people for the workforce of the future. And then the fifth one is one that we are particularly bullish on that is, I think, emerging, and that's visibility. And that one probably requires a little more explanation Because what we mean by that is as the skills-based economy comes into focus and it becomes more viable and is is beginning to really happen, and by skills-based, we mean that employers are hiring based on skills and learners are selling their skills rather than where I went to college or my major. Everything needs to be machine readable and coming in both directions so that learners can be discovered and employers can discover them, and there needs to be translation tools. And so this visibility piece of your skills becomes critical in this next era of learning and hiring. Yeah, you just unlocked a a few thoughts. There's not a month that doesn't go by that there's a new study about whether the degree still matters, right? Which I, from my perspective, I definitely think it does and has a lot of purposes, whether it's undergraduate or graduate. But I think what you're trying to say here or you're saying is that that was kind of the the center of the universe, the the earth that everything revolved around. And that's not necessarily the future. And so we've had a couple of companies that have come out like Hilton and Penguin Random House to say, hey, we're going to drop the degree requirements. I don't know if that's a sensational headline or whether that's true or not. But this idea of this skills-based economy that we're going to hire you based on your competencies ultimately and what you can actually do and not just a, a diploma of some kind. Can you kind of walk us through what that looks like? And and is this going to create a new class of credentialing out there? What are your thoughts here? Yeah. I mean, the answer, short answer is yes. It, it will both create a new class of credentials, way more opportunity for new majority learners, because if we do it right, you'll be able to be hired You know, based on not where you went to school or what your degree is, or whether you could actually do a degree financially or time-wise, but you know, based on the skills you've been able to demonstrate and what that can mean, let's say for a frontline worker, we're doing experiments in this case, in, in this work with Goodwill, for example, is that you can, if you can demonstrate that you have, let's say, 21st century skills like collaboration or communication or collaboration, you get a credential if you and you demonstrate this in the workplace you get a credential that makes you eligible for a promotion um, to supervisor you know this is some of what we've seen in the prototyping and testing and pilots that we've done where you get the employers to break down you know what does competency need to look like for this job and it's very sort of role specific and then you get the, the the learner to do either an assessment or other demonstrations of of those skills and they don't have to go back to college or go to college to be a become the supervisor in logistics at in San Antonio, which is one of the places we're working. They have other ways to demonstrate it that are machine readable, so it can be visible to not just their employer, but other employers. And that's what the excitement is about from both employers and advocates for uh, for new majority learners, is that this visibility will create opportunity. A lot of things could go wrong. And the timing for this, I would say, Yes, a lot of employers are starting to make proclamations that they will, you know, like IBM recently said, 50% of our of our jobs now do not of our professional jobs do not require a degree. And I would say, you know, maybe 
a company a month is coming out and saying this. And and part of it is to demonstrate that they're, you know, they're looking for talent wherever they can find it. And in part of it's coming from, you know, shortages of, you know, they're not able to meet their labor needs and they're willing to train on, you know, train on site because they, they have to, but it's uh it's been, it's been an interesting phenomenon. And, and I think COVID sped it up for sure. This movement, and and the talent shortages and the lack of talent, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So help help me reconcile something where, for better or for worse, the college degree and the brand that the college degree is coming from and the subject matter signals something, right? It it sort of puts you in a class for better or for worse and allows employers to make decisions. And maybe that's not the right way to do it, but that's how it's operated in this new world order, if you will. We've got you know a few thousand colleges, a, a half a dozen accreditors. It's a pretty standard model, right, that the the student is graduating or coming into the workforce with a certain type of credential. Here, you got millions of employers, right? Obviously, you have the big ones, and you just mentioned one of them, IBM. You got all the big tech guys running around. You know, help me make sense of this, right, is that if, if, if you don't necessarily have to go to college and you're someone that wants to move forward in your career, how do you signal all of this to, to the employer as you go through your career. Yeah, that I think you've identified what is probably the biggest challenge of the skills-based economy because every employer, you know, really is a snowflake right? <laughs> and uh, when you talk to them about the roles that they want to hire for, they think about it through their lens. But there are initiatives that are trying to systematize those credentials, like the new the new credentials we're doing work in this area for example where you you identify a role, but it's a role that a lot of employers would have, let's say cloud associate, this is one that, that we're doing, or logistics supervisor. And we are working at the association level, like with the manufacturing institute or the cybersecurity groups, right, that are that are at least able to kind of be the translation arbiters across their companies. And, and that is one of the big pieces of work to be done here is to the term is competency mapping, you know, that we need to create the competency maps that roll into new kinds of credentials. So we're, we're trying to, you know, sort of push parties to adopt frameworks, not just across companies, but across states, across country. And in the area of 21st century or power skills or soft skills, whatever you want to call them, we've actually identified, you know, we've been working on this for like six years. So we're putting forward our own framework and trying to get everyone to adopt it so that this problem, this Tower of Babel problem, most people will call it, you know, for the biblical reference, it mitigates that problem. And we're not going to completely solve it because lots of people want to have their own 21st century skill framework. But AI and machine learning will help on these things in the background, right? Because this is why it's possible now, whereas it wasn't five years ago even, is that we'll be able to map what's called the rich skill descriptors or what they call the the actual descriptions underneath the skill. And those can, those have intelligence, you know, or the, the systems have intelligence that can translate without us having to go through and do it in a bespoke fashion. But you do have to have a figure figure out a way that the humans involved in this in these transactions, the learner and and the app, you know, the job applicant and the employer, actually they have to understand the translation as well. So AI can't completely solve this problem. 
Yeah, I mean, it, the source of truth issue is is a problem here or a challenge, I should say. It feels like, you know, this is where universities can come in, partner with employers to kind of start to, to create this universal source of truth around all these different competencies that can hopefully, you know, can be universally used. There's a couple of stats I want to hit on right now and just get your reaction to. One was from the opportunity work, and this kind of hits on what you were talking about with the uh, portability, estimates that as many as 30 million workers have the skills to earn 70% more, but lack a credential to prove it. That's really powerful. How do we fix that? <laughs> right. Uh, you're, you're hitting on one of the ones that gives us the most pain. And I mean, the way to fix it is it's easy to understand, but it's hard to execute. And that is, we have to figure out a way to translate the skills people have to job requirements in a way that gives the employers comfort to hire them without the degree. And so the effort that we have, this is one of our biggest laboratory projects right now. We call it X credit, which is stands for experience credit. It has nothing to do with college credit. It's how can a learner or an earner, you know, how can a person be hired for what they can do? How does that get validated by an employer in a way that de-risks that hire absent the proxy of a degree? And this has been a really interesting, we're one year into the project and, you know, I, I want to give a shout out to walmart.org, which has been our, our funder for this project. And we have really interesting partners ranging from, we're, we're actually doing a military use case in the first year because the military is the furthest along really in identifying the competencies of the skills of service members through what are called the MOSs, the uh, military operations specialties, or it's very well delineated. You know, if you're at this level, you have this level of mastery of this competency. And it's been pretty well translated in some areas uh, in, a, in a sort of a scalable fashion. So we, we're starting with the military as someone who's transitioning out of the military and is trying to get credit for, let's say, skills they had as a military cook, where they were very active in working on maintenance for large-scale kitchen equipment. And that translates very well to a lot of smart manufacturing jobs in the private sector. How does the person demonstrate that they have validated skill without having to go back to school or go and earn a credential where they you know have to sit through learning this thing again that they already know how to do that's the stat that opportunity at work is talking about you know you hear when you interview learners they'll say yeah i can do that i just don't have the piece of paper right do you see connecting the x credit to actually degree granting credit because sometimes you might need to round it out to become that licensed practitioner of some kind Yes, we have a number of colleges who are offering to be our articulation partner uh, in this. But I mean, it's a great business, right? <laughs> because they obviously, you know, the learner would pay for the credential, but they're only paying a small amount to get the credential issued as opposed to the tuition to sit through the course, right? So, yes, we have a number of partners. We're also looking to link up with, you know, how ACE has a, a sort of a, a certification process. Some of our employer partners are telling us that, oh, that would actually that would actually help. You know, that, that's a signal for us. But we even feel like there ought to be signals in, let's say, customer service. If you're an Uber driver and you have a 4.9 customer service ranking score and you've done, you know, 8,000 rides, that should count for something as a business skill in customer service if you want to go be a call center manager or a call center something, right, technical sales 
that should count for something. And how does that translate in a way that you could demonstrate it in your, your wallet or your portfolio of, of skills or your resume, your smart resume? Sounds really exciting and should increase job opportunities for people everywhere. I mean, really exciting. Another stat that you recently referred to, and again, you've been hitting on this idea, is, is that you reference how college isn't working for 60% of the market, which is a crisis, I would argue. And when you see things like student debt now above $1.7 trillion, you know, you can sort of triangulate on, on that number. Can you unpack that a little for us? Because it's, it's a pretty powerful number, I think, as people, part of education, citizens, whatever, we need to really understand that this system is not working as well as it could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this really gets to this question of, you know, whether you try to fix college around the edges, you know, whether like you work on scholarships or let's try and get more people in to the old system, the traditional system versus, you know, like some people will say, blow it up and it needs to be something else for a majority of people. And I think we would argue, no, I mean, it's a great system for those you know, mostly for those who can't afford it without going into super debt and who can take, you know, have that lovely coming of age experience, not broken for them. And we should continue on with it because it also has a lot of other economic benefits for society around, you know, research and development and GDP, et cetera. But we say that it's not working for 60% of the addressable market because of adults. I mean, 50% of people who go to college overall graduate, but the, you know those numbers are a bit lower for learners of color. And over time, we've put a lot of philanthropy and federal money into trying to improve those graduation rates, and it's not getting markedly better. And one, like one of the statistics that moved us to begin to do design work for transfer students from, we're trying to transfer from community college to four-year colleges, is that 17% of the learners who start out in community college saying that they hope to attain a four-year degree, only 17% do. And that's not a system that's working. And that's 12 million people who are in community, you know, who go to community college. These are big numbers. I mean, of of black students, African-American students, only two out of five who start college will graduate. Uh, Half of Latinos who start will graduate. This is a system that that you can't just work on around the edges. And yet when we say, oh, well, let's do, and, and I can talk to you about some of the ways that we're looking at new models. When you describe these new models, people say, oh, you know, but they're nostalgic, right? And they don't want to give up. They want everyone to have the experience that, you know, like you and I, I mean, I don't know if you went to a, had a nice leafy campus college experience, but I did, and it was lovely. And there's, you know, there's a guilt around, we need to provide that for everyone, but it's not working. And so, you know, we don't want to track people, but what's a third way? Yeah. I've interviewed a few folks from the community college community, and there's, there was a ton of enthusiasm around this very important part of our system really, you know, a year ago or so when, when Biden was elected and obviously his, his wife was a professor for many years in this area. And so it brought a lot of attention to it. You've made clear that community colleges can do a lot to serve the new majority learner through things like apprenticeships and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about these micro pathways and even define that and how this market can actually use them? And again, make the 60% number a lot less? Yeah, so we started working with community colleges maybe three or f- well, maybe four or five years ago because we really 
we really saw them, they have their ear to the ground in their communities to to serve, you know, the part of the population that largely is new majority learners. They have the trust with that community. They have the affordability. You know, affordability is community college credit is like $140 a semester for a credit. So affordability is not a crisis there. And so the the issue is then what's wrong? Because people are leaving community college. They've lost like a million learners over the past decade after, you know, numbers were going up. And in the past two years, this dramatically falling off. And so, you know, something is wrong with the community college model, or there needs to be an additional model. And I think, interestingly, community college leaders see that and are very hungry for sort of transformation work and for becoming more of a sort of a talent engine in their communities. So we, in doing design work with them, have kind of landed on a a strategy which is showing a lot of early promise. And that is this idea that you start, that you can offer someone to start in community college with a micro pathway. And what that is really is a, it's a track towards a specific job role goal that takes one year or less and that gets you specifically to a, a living wage role. So in other words, we're not doing it for be a short order cook or jobs that were, that are potentially dead end. And that it's all done through, you know, kind of data driven exercises about where are the jobs in this particular community and, and what are the growth areas. So the micro pathway creates a way for the, the college to capture the requirements for a short term pathway that largely are on what they call the non-credit side of the house. So in other words, a lot of learners are just going and taking a course over here on the non-credit side. You know, it's not covered by, it's not covered by financial aid. It's not covered by any um, advising or it doesn't track towards a degree. And so they're, you know, they're coming and taking a course and then they're leaving. And so a way to bring them into the system is to create a micro pathway that, that actually has as its goal to articulate into the college and to be able to demonstrate through that visibility I mentioned, what is the path for a degree? So you you can take this one micro pathway and you're very hireable immediately. And you can also see how you would carry on and then, you know, go to the next level. And we have done, we've created 30 of these with our first round of 11 colleges that we're working with around the country, including the whole state of Indiana, the whole city of New York. And we've created 30 of these and they're they're just showing a lot of promise because Learners are signing up and some of the colleges are saying things like, well, this was a great way to, like, people could dip a toe in. What we were finding is a lot of these learners were not willing to commit two or more years or two years to, like, taking a degree in a community college. It was too much time, too much money, and the financial aid process was complicated, but they were very willing to come in and do this often part-time course that takes them to this job because it's it's focused on what's the job you're going to get as opposed to and it's you know sanctioned by employers because the employers are designing them with us so it, the the model like for instance the community college chancellor in Pima which is Tucson Arizona has described this as a new approach that he wants to use for his whole college which is a universal design so that you're thinking about these micro pathways as like Lego links that link you to the future that you want to see in the long run. But with each Lego stack, you're very employable in the short term. And that's, you know, that's one of the design criteria that we're hearing again and again. People want a short term gain 
financially for their families, not something that might work out at the end of two years when they go and figure out what am I going to do with this degree. Can you give any couple of examples of just how this comes to life, especially when you think about the idea that skills are changing constantly, jobs that exist today won't exist tomorrow. So yeah, great. They go for nine months or 12 months and and get a livable wage. Are they going to need to come back into the educational system? Is that sort of mapped out for them? It would be great to just put it to life with something like nursing or teaching or anything that you guys are working on. We'd love to hear about. Yeah, I'll give an an example. Like uh, I would say out of the 31st round of these pilots that we're doing, they're in allied health, they're in business, information technology, advanced manufacturing, building trades. And about a third of them are new, are brand new roles, right? Where the, where the college has never done a role like this before. I mean, one of them I can mention that Seattle is doing is called an Epic Associate. And Epic is the, is, is it's a healthcare IT play that they're actually developing with Seattle Children's Hospital. And the Children's Hospital is paying, once they started designing this with the Seattle Community College, they offered to pay for learners to do the pathway and guarantee them an interview because they were so desperate for people to be administrators for this Epic is is a hospital IT system that not enough people know how to you know know how to operate and and we're able to lay out the pathway for the learner to get the Epic Associate Administrator you know certificate and then continue on on an engineering path or they can take different subpaths to either in more of a business route around administration or an IT route to you know to gain skills there and we're able to show them the salary levels as they go up. And another example would be a digital manufacturing technician. Like I'm not even entirely sure what is myself, but it um, this is one that Indiana is doing, where it's a brand new ask from their manufacturing employers, and it it breaks down becoming a a manufacturing engineer. It breaks it down into you know middle skills jobs where you can do the first six months get hired and then and then continue from there. We're even able to show people, I've just got the numbers here for the wages, they're able to go from earning, for example, the electromechanical manufacturing technician, which is the first job that you can do right after this few month pathway, $23 an hour. You can then scale up by going with another micro pathway to make $26 an hour as a technician, as a digital manufacturing technician. And then if you get your AAS degree in smart manufacturing, digital integration, right, you can go up to $39 an hour. So, you know, you get the point, but we're able to lay, lay that out for people. Yeah, it's so tightly integrated. A couple of just follow-up questions here. One is, how do they connect the supply and demand? So this hospital in Seattle needs 20 a year or 100 a year. Are they, are they making those calculations then going to their partner and saying, hey, don't recruit more than 100 students because then we won't really have places for them? How do you think about connecting that supply and demand in this model? Yeah, I mean, we have to have that feedback loop and that's going to be very important. And we're careful not to bring in employers who have one-off needs. Cloud Associate is one of them that we're doing. I mentioned earlier you know, there's employers all over the country who have that need. And that is actually two or three of our different colleges in different parts of the country are doing that one. I think we're going to be, you know, creating a community of practice, if you will, for employers and the colleges to be able to, you know, sort of track supply and demand for these, because I think that's a critical missing link. 
but we're starting with the most heavily needed roles. I mean, the Epic Administrator, the nice thing about that one is that's a need all over the country. And so other colleges are looking at the one Seattle created and saying, oh, we have hospitals. Let's ask our hospitals if they also need this. And that's starting to happen. We're starting a second cohort of another 12 colleges in January, including another statewide effort. So we're excited about that. It's starting to gain momentum. Hmm, very exciting. You know, it's it's really fascinating to see the approach, which is very sort of local, regionally based, you know, employer and job, you know, sort of up into the education. Whereas we've seen over the last several years, this explosion in these direct to learner models, you know, like the Coursera's of the world and edX and Masterclass and so on and so forth. How do you think about that, you know, in, in terms of working within your view of the future? I think even from the first MOOCs that we saw, you know, coming onto the scene, 2012, 2013, the issue was always completion. And also the issue was, what about the learner that is not, you know, is not self-directed or an autodidact, the learner who might need their confidence boosted in order to, you know, sign up for something or might have time poverty like single moms, right? And so, you know, we would argue that a pretty significant part of the addressable market for new ways of learning is either not going to sign up for a Coursera course because they don't like, it's just out there hanging by itself out of context, or they need structure. They need it to be part of something they're already doing either for time reasons or confidence or understanding the why those courses are great. Those things are great. And what you see a lot of community colleges doing is then trying to bring them in bring those things in. We don't have any data scientists here to teach data science stuff. Let's figure out a way to, you know, bring those bring those learnings in, but but in a human touch kind of model. And I think that's one of the hot areas that you see coming online now. So we're we're getting close to wrapping up here. I'd love to get your perspective on the pandemic as an instrument of change. We're still unpacking the numbers from you know the fall 2021 cohort, it seems like similar to fall 2020, where undergraduate was down considerably, especially community colleges, graduate enrollment slightly up. You know, how do you think the pandemic has, has sort of pushed certain changes, hopefully in, in good ways, around education? Well, we've witnessed in colleges a Herculean entrepreneurial spirit of people figuring out how to pivot on a dime and deliver what learners needed and, you know, and often in kind of dangerous circumstances for their own, you know, their own health of professors and administrators. So I've just been really impressed just generally that has to be said. And as far as how it's helped accelerate the pace of changes that needed to happen anyway, it certainly has. And I think it's partly because consumer demand was already changing where people wanted faster results. They wanted just-in-time learning. They wanted career and job-focused training as opposed to let me go off to college for a while, at least for the particularly working adults. And it, it's helped, I think, the providers understand that they have to meet changing needs and they have to do it quickly. And what they realize is they can. That's perhaps the most exciting part is the confidence about innovation that I see coming from a lot of colleges. I mean, they're worn out because they've been you know, turning on a dime for two years now, but they can do it and they're excited about doing it. And there's no choice but to do it because enrollments are down. Exactly. That's necessity is the mother of all invention. So 
let's talk about five years from now. What do you hope Education Design Lab has accomplished and where do you see the higher ed industry as a whole? Well, we have as our North Star goal that the models, because we, we design and test new models for higher education, right, that meet the needs of new majority learners. And our, our five-year goal is that we have improved economic mobility for a million new majority learners. And not just for a million for the sake of a million, but to us, that's sort of the tipping point for adoption and escalation of this, you know, this mindset that the old model is not going to serve any but a small, smaller and smaller minority of, of learners, mostly traditional age learners. And that if we can get to, you know, if there are 20 million learners in higher ed today, if we can get 10% of them or you know, even 5% that are starting to have success in these new models, that becomes a, a snowball from which we can build and make it better. Because I'm, I'm not saying that we have the answers. I just think we're trying to push the pace of change to serve the learners that are you know, not getting served. And we'll be able to, I think, pull in the good parts that we, that the nostalgia you know, has us hanging on to. Those are elements of design that you know, hopefully we can hang on to as we you know, move to a, a fully new model of higher education. Yeah, I think if we can move a bit faster, I'll, I'll see your 1 million and, and raise you to 10 million. That's good. Yeah, we, we don't, I mean, we're just, you know, we may, maybe we're not thinking big enough because we set that goal a few years ago. Well, it's certainly a big number, but when you break it down to your, your one college that you're working with and in Tucson or Seattle, you start to see, wow, it's tough to get there. But when you think about how big our population is, how much this type of learning is needed to keep people advancing in the economy, I think we're going to have to get to a much bigger number. So what is the one thing you would like to ensure our listeners walk away understanding from our conversation here today? You know, I fear that some people listening will think that we're going to, that we are advocating for the traditional model of college to, you know, to get blown up or to go away. And I don't want to leave people with, with that thought. We revere all the all the wonderful things that, you know, that make the higher education system in the US, you know, that sort of we had been the envy of the world up until this point. I, you know, I think we still are in this regard. And those need to be built upon, but we can't hang on to the nostalgic past that those of us lucky enough to go through that system and remember it so fondly are, you know, sort of hanging on to in a, in a way that is actually hurting future learners and a majority of them. All right. So I asked this of all my guests. Part of what we love about education is that we all have learning champions. Who has been a learning champion for you and how has that person helped you in your life? I'd probably go all the way back to high school for me. I had an English teacher in both 10th and I had her again in 12th grade. I went to one of those huge high school, public high schools where you felt like nobody was paying attention, nobody cared. And I had this English teacher who I think in 10th grade taught me how to write because I had, you know, I did I was not a writer. And by 12th grade she made me feel like I could write, you know, and I could go to a maybe get into a good college and be an English major, which I was. Yeah, you know, I became a writer. I became a journalist for. I was a journalist for 15 years. Yeah, I, I really attribute it to Mrs. Smith. I tried to find her recently, but because um, I couldn't tell how old she was when I was in high school. But I think I'm afraid that I didn't get to go back and thank her because I think she was gone by the time I was really appreciating her enough, and I feel really bad about that. Well, that's a wonderful story. 
Thank you so much, Kathleen. I really appreciate our time talking here today. I'm so excited what the Design Lab is doing, what is next, the X credit, uh, the micro pathways. This is really exciting. So until next time, this has been an educated guest. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to An Educated Guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley Education Services, please visit edservices.wiley.com.